Michael. So you remember last December when I was visiting you in Boston and we taped that episode with Nick and Sabrina from Edmit in that studio that uh, looked a little bit like it was set up for a grunge band in the 1990s? Yeah, how could I forget, Jeff? It was the last episode I think we might have taped in person and colleges might feel that way pretty soon as well. I mean, when are we going to be back in person? And that's certainly the case in the 23-campus Cal State system, which has largely been virtual this year. And today, we'll have the president of one of its campuses, Judy Sakaki from Sonoma State. This episode of Future You is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This episode is also brought to you by Liaison, partner with the leading provider of strategic enrollment management solutions to leverage the power of community. Learn more at liaisonedu.com. I'm Michael Horn. And I'm Jeff Salingo. You might recall on our last episode of Future U, we talked with the president of Boston University, Bob Brown, about why the university decided to reopen this fall and what went into that decision and the logistics about pulling it off. As we discussed, there were institutions that went in the opposite direction that decided not to reopen this fall. And that side of the debate is one we're going to focus on in today's episode with Judy Sakaki, who has been president of Sonoma State since 2016. Welcome to Future You, Judy. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks. So let's go back to last spring for a minute, because the Cal State system was the first to announce way back in May that it was going to go online for the fall. And perhaps like everything else with this coronavirus, some thought that might have been a bit premature. In hindsight, however, we now know that many other institutions ended up following Cal State. Can you give our listeners a bit of behind the scenes about why the system made the decision so early and specifically for your campus? Do you think it was a good idea and and what impact did it have by knowing in May what the fall semester would be like? Well, you know, Sonoma State University is one of 23 campuses in the California State University system. And we meet, the presidents meet together with the chancellor regularly. And when um, the pandemic was unfolding, we were having actually daily, we even on weekends, we were meeting together and talking about what was going on in each of our respective regions. Because of course, our campuses span the whole state of California. And so um, that, helped inform, I think, the system decision that it would be best for our campus communities to know and our faculty and staff to know and students and parents to know what was ahead and they could plan accordingly. Um, It was still a a pretty quick pivot, um, an early announcement, but it allowed us to, I think, be, be more ready. And it was the right decision based on the science. The chancellor was speaking to many scientists about what was unfolding. In terms of for the campus, it really helped us um, to better prepare our students to talk with parents, to um, have faculty. Um, You know, we have the range of faculty. Some faculty were very ready to move to a remote sort of online teaching, um, remote virtual instruction, and others needed to ramp up. So there was time for our faculty center to work with those faculty, for faculty to help other faculty. 
Um, and it just, I think, allowed us for a smoother transition. And how do you think it helped with uh, student enrollment in, in particular, which has been all over the map, of course, across the country um, in terms of students coming back, not coming back or starting and not starting? Um, how do you think, again, an early decision helped your students kind of prepare for that decision about whether to enroll or not? You know, that's been tough. Um, our campus was one that we've seen an enrollment decline particularly among first-year, first-time students. And that, that's hard. As a public university, um, so much of our, our budget is really dependent on enrollment. And so with that decline, um, we've had to adjust, make adjustments, um, and that is of concern. For some of our students, now our university has had a series of crises, just as others have, but maybe a little bit more so. You know, three years ago, we had the terrible wildfires um, in Northern California. And I and many of our students, staff and faculty lost our homes and everything we owned. So we had to close the university then and send students back for their safety. Um, We've since that time have had other fires and smoke. And we have um, power shutdowns. And so this has affected our students. And so some of our students who were coming to us from Southern California, other parts of the state, um, did not choose to join us. Now we still have about 500 students living residentially on our campus this semester, and we will um, likely have that and maybe a little bit more in the spring, but we will continue to be remote and to really pay attention to the health and safety of not just the students, but our faculty and staff, and also our budget, because to do the kind of cleaning that is required when you open up and you have students on site um, or living in the residence halls, we have had to ramp up and to buy the um, protective equipment that uh, we need. That's all costly. So it's interesting because you you raised that impact of not only COVID-19 impact in California, but also the wildfires have been devastating the state, you know, once again right now. Uh, And I'm curious just how this experiment with remote education, how does it set you up for thinking more broadly about the future of residential education there in your campus? Uh, You know, given the predictions that there's going to be more wildfires in the years to come that we know that this is, you know, with climate change and so forth, these are going to be significant issues that your region in particular grapples with. You know, it's all about preparing and being ready. Um, Our campus has been... um, three times or more, mission tasked by the state. As a public university, we became a COVID surge space. We became, we housed, two of our residential halls um, were used to house COVID vulnerable individuals. And during the fires, recent fires, we became a fire evacuation site. It's part of, um, you know, what a regional university does to support the community, but Mm -hmm. it also, is very taxing on a university. And we have, you know, um, student concerns and family concerns and faculty and staff concerns as well. But we are a part of the community here in Sonoma County and we serve that community. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that 
uh, often gets lost in some of these conversations. I'm curious, you know, thinking about communities and, and the higher ed community as a whole, as, as you know, many other colleges and universities and their presidents in particular came under fire for reopening this fall. And, and so as an institution that went in a different direction, I'm curious what you make of the criticism of higher ed in general about that reopening question and, and the fire that those presidents and institutions came under. You know, each um, part of the state, each part of the country is a little different with the COVID spread. And um, I don't want to second guess what some of my colleagues have done and, and how they've done it and how they've rolled out. We know for us, it worked to be fully transparent to, I'm a very open president to talk with the faculty and staff. I have walk and talks with students and faculty and staff around campus just to one-on-one -on -one hear voices and hear not just from student leaders or faculty leaders or staff leaders, but general folks on our, in our campus community. And now those have turned to remote. I have walk, virtual walk and talks with students, you know, Zoom. Students used to, they started a thing where they have something called selfie with Sakaki. And <laughs> I miss that I can't do that. But we try to lean our heads together on Zoom and um, <clears throat> take some selfies kind of this way. So it's adjusting. And I think you know, we have to take into consideration that there are different concerns by campus, by type of campus, by region, by state, and all of those things need to be taken into consideration. I think being open and talking through with the different constituents groups about how your thought processes are going um, leads for no surprises. And we did that, each president in the CSU did that with our campus constituents. And then the chancellor also for the system wrote direct letters uh, that we disseminated on each of our campuses to the, you know, the 480,000 students um, and the faculty and staff on our institutions. So Judy, you bring up a, a good point here because, um, you know, obviously Cal State is a huge system, not only in terms of number of campuses, but uh, but students and also spread out uh, in, uh, across this enormous state. And these are difficult decisions to make on a single campus. But can you give us a sense of how they're made in a, in a system? Because I'm trying to get a sense of, is it better at this moment to be part of the scale of a system of Cal State? You know, because some people will say, well, systems just move slowly and don't offer flexibility. So is there an option for campuses to have more flexibility? Or is this more? Is this a? Is this an opportunity for for systems to to have more management on this issue? Can you describe a little bit about for our listeners who might be part of systems in other states uh, about how how you're managing through the systemness of of this all uh, in terms of your campus versus the system? I think it's been really beneficial to be part of a system. Um, we have these regular Zoom calls. In fact, we have another one today at four o'clock. All the presidents get on uh, with the chancellor and chancellor's senior team. And we talk about issues. We bring issues up. We talk about what's going on in our community and what might be happening in Humboldt State far to the north may be very different from San Diego State far to the south. Different size campuses, different communities. But we share what's going on in our region and what's happening with our faculty and our staff and our students. And then together, 
we listen to each other and we come to some um, agreement, some consensus, if you will, um, about how we should operate and move forward. And I think it's a very healthy and I feel, and we all feel very supported in that way. So I think it's uh, been helpful to be a part of the system and to have um, thought partners with other presidents. Yeah, it, it must be nice to have that thought partner with other presidents who are in similar not only similar positions, but obviously similar types of institutions where single institutions don't necessarily have that. They obviously have counterparts, but they're but they're not within that system. So let's fast forward a minute here to, to this fall, where again, the system was ahead of everyone else across the country and announcing the spring would also be online. So why announce it so early? And, and what does that look like in, in reality? You, you had mentioned, I think there are 500 students on campus now, they'll probably be about the same in the in the spring. Spring. Will the spring be any different than the than the fall? You know, um, it will be very similar. Um, we will be primarily remote, um, but each region. You know, we are in in California. We're in the um, they have tiers, color tiers. We're in purple right now, which is the most um, COVID spread, and so the things are kind of closed down. Other parts of the state are in other colors, and they're more you know, whether they can have in restaurant dining or other kinds of things that's different in each region. So we have really um, announcing early has allowed us to plan. And our spring is going to be somewhat similar to what it was like in the fall. Um, We will likely have a few more uh, residential. We're shooting instead of 500, maybe 650 students living on campus. We've had students Um, who, you know, the residence halls are their homes for many of them. We have an increasing number of foster, former foster youth. And so um, the residence halls are where they live. But we also have students who, whose families um, and themselves say prefer to live on campus. The internet is more stable. They have access. We have had um, each of our students that is living on campus has a private room, a private bathroom, access, and a kitchen. And so um, some for some students, they find that it is um, more helpful to their making academic progress by having a quiet place. Rather, maybe at home they share a bedroom or they have extended family living with them. And so we found that um, in that regard, it's been very helpful and we're getting uh, increasing requests to think about um, students living on campus. For faculty and staff, um, they like the certainty of knowing. You know, we have faculty and staff who have children at home, who have young people who are zooming their own school, you know, classes, and um, knowing ahead to plan ahead. We promised them we wouldn't pivot um, with two weeks' notice to say, oh, back in the classroom, back on campus, that we would give adequate notice so that people could plan. And that's part of, I think, um, what distinguishes Sonoma State. We like to say we're a resilient community, but we're also a very caring community. So we are looking out for the health and safety and welfare of everyone, students, 
but faculty and staff as well. When we think about that welfare and, and, and perhaps the more, you know, impact on student success specifically, you know, those undergraduates who will have been remote for an entire year, given how the fall and, and spring will shake out. What do you expect the impact to look like in terms of persistence and, and, and learning and so forth? And what are your plans to re-engage them when, whenever it is that we, you know, you, you get to welcome them back, uh, not just, I guess, living on campus in some cases, but actually in a full campus experience? You know, it is so interesting because some students have really taken to this remote environment and some faculty are saying that students that uh, they were teaching in the spring when we had to change spoke up more when they went to Zoom. So really, um, you know, different students perform in different ways. We're making sure that we have a lot of remote sort of services, virtual services, whether it's um, counseling because we're concerned about mental health and the students' wellness, um, whether it's activities for those students, whether it's exercise classes or things that they would normally do in the rec center. Um, I've had, let's see, I, I meet with small groups of students that are living in the residence halls and also students who are living off campus. I just make myself available and we just chat. They also have small groups where they can just, whether it's a student organization, a club, um, they're, they're meeting remotely, just as I've told our faculty and staff, take time to listen and give opportunity to pe- for people to share. Because normally you would, before a meeting, you'd you know, chat with someone and you'd say, how's it going? You'd have a cup of coffee. We don't have that. So I'm trying to create that space um, within our meetings. Even I'm currently the um, American Council on Education Chair of the Women's Network. And um, we have our regular meetings. We have sort of check-ins. We have women leaders all across the country. And normally we would have this opportunity to interact in meetings, but we don't have that. So virtually we take some time at the, either the start or the end of the meeting just sharing, how is it going for you professionally and personally in this COVID time? I think we really need to make space for that that kind of connection. Yeah, no, that's terrific, Judy, and, and, and appreciate your reflections on all these questions right now that are fraught with so much complexity and uh, taking the time out of a busy day to be with us. Uh, r- really appreciate it. You know, there's no training for this, um, whether it was in our doctoral programs or in leadership <laughs> programs. No one said, you're going to face a pandemic and this is how you should do X, Y, and Z. There's no little check boxes. We're sort of learning as we go. And I've found that it really takes both our own personal background and our upbringing, our educational training, and then sharing with each other to be the best that we can to continue to lead in a, you know, a really healthy way. And that's so, so important. I, I, you know, that we haven't really spoken about the um, racial injustice and the climate that's Mm -hmm. going on. That is so critical to lead right now, too, as well. And um, I was reminded, I think of, I, I like using poetry to help bring people together, whether it's in my campus update messages or not. And one that sticks with me that I'd like to close and share with you is uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, a poet who wrote in her poem uh, titled Paul Robeson, said, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And so, unquote, and I just think together, 
we will support each other, we will help each other, and we will continue to help students reach their dreams and their goals. So thank you so much. Yeah, Judy, that's a great way to end it with a note of compassion and community. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll be right back on Future You. Support for this podcast is provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is committed to preserving and expanding educational opportunity for today's students now more than ever. Learn more at postsecondary.gatesfoundation.org. This episode is also brought to you by Liaison. Any of the 31,000 programs that are members of Liaison's CAST community will tell you the challenges of 2020 have proven that you can rely on us to provide uninterrupted admission services to streamline your processes and to fill your pipeline. When you partner with Liaison, you gain access to our technology and our team of devoted customer service representatives. But most importantly, you gain access to the universities and leaders who have been members of Liaison's CAST community for over three decades. Learn more at liaisonedu.com. Welcome back to Future You and our conversation with uh, Judy Sakaki from Sonoma State. And Jeff, I'd, I'd love to get your take on Judy's point that it was actually important to announce early to give students and parents, not to mention faculty and staff, a, a heads up so that they could plan appropriately for the school year. Yet, as Judy pointed out, their enrollment of first-year students still fell, but across the broader system of Cal State, it actually rose, and, and which is interesting, right, relative to uh, the rest of higher ed that fell. So I, I'm just curious, because you're so deeply in touch with students right now and guidance counselors and the like, have you seen a correlation between schools that have reopened and those that didn't in their enrollment or those that announced early? How, how is this breaking down? Yeah, I don't think it, it, it is that simple to try to figure out. So I don't think there's a simple you know cause and effect here uh, about whether the schools have, have reopened. And it's clear that there's something else going on in probably the Cal State system with some campuses that are just more popular than others in terms of their enrollment. Now, that's for the fall. I think the spring might be different, much like we're starting to see pressure at the K through 12 level for schools to open up. It's clear we're also seeing pressure uh, for the spring semester for colleges to open up. And so for those institutions, including Cal State, which have decided to basically be remain online for the spring, I think you're going, you're going to see some students who might have only taken off the first semester and then were thinking about coming back now, not coming back at all uh, for the second semester. And I think there were some colleges that were thinking, well, maybe our enrollment would go up for the spring because those students decided to take only the fall semester off. And now if they're not back in person, I think those students are going to be taken off the spring semester as well. I also think that we might start to see more enrollment changes for next fall. I'm hearing rumblings already of a lot more transfer activity expected in talking to high school counselors in particular, that they're hearing from students from the class of 2020, the high school graduating class of 2020, that there's some institution institutional shopping going around. In other words, that there's these students who started college this fall who are kind of unhappy with the experience that they're having, uh, mostly online, for example. And so they're looking for colleges that have been 
mostly in person this year, thinking that those are more likely the colleges to be in person next year. And they're looking to transfer to those institutions just as insurance policies in case next fall is going to be a little bit like this fall, which, of course, we all hope it won't be. Uh, The other thing that I think is also going on with that institutional shopping is that students think that colleges, more selective colleges, might actually be more desperate for students next year and so that they can actually trade up uh, and get into more selective colleges as sophomores uh, than they would have gotten as freshmen. So I think we're, it will be interesting to see when we start to see transfer numbers next year, what, what, what are the trends that we're seeing in those transfer numbers. It's incredibly interesting, Jeff, to hear you say that, because I think part of this is that no one really knew for for those schools that said we're reopening BU, as we discussed last time is a bit of an exception in this, but a lot of the schools just put out announcements We're we're reopening and people sort of, I think, weren't sure whether they really believed them or not. And in many cases, they went back right on those announcements, uh, either over the summer or once they brought students back in the case of places like UNC Chapel Hill, and they saw outbreaks, and then they reversed course. Uh, And so that hesitancy and then maybe more certainty for the students because they have more believability now in the announcements, if you will, for the spring and and, and certainly next fall makes sense. My my only pushback, I think, a, a, a little bit is that I do think the Cal State system did benefit because if you said you were virtual early on, people believed that message, right? They didn't think you were all of a sudden going to be in person when you when you went with that stance, which wasn't necessarily popular with a lot of traditional age college students and, and, and folks looking for a campus environment. But I do think that certainty, it, it certainly did not hurt the system. I think the way a lot of prognosticators and presidents perhaps thought it would, Jeff. And so I, I think at the very least that that is an interesting signal that like the certainty didn't hurt and it might have helped some of the campuses, even if it didn't directly contribute to a, a, an increase, right, at Sonoma State specifically. I, it's just to me that transparency and honesty, though, uh, is is just really important. And, and it's going to be maybe even more important a few years hence from now, when people sort of look back and say, okay, were they honest with students as we're making our own decisions now a few years ago, or, or did they sort of break this covenant of trust, if you will? And I think that could have really long-term damaging impacts on brands uh, for those institutions that maybe cynically said, we're going to reopen and then did it. Yeah. So Michael, speaking of a few years from now, I mean, do you think that this is kind of a lost class from this year that the college graduating class of 2024 will just forever be the smallest, one of the smallest ever? Yeah, I think it could be. I'm not sure I would use the uh, phrase lost class. It's almost diminished class, right? Or something like that. But uh, I'm more interested in the rebalancing that's going to happen in future years. Like, will gap years become a trend uh, that sticks uh, in, in some measure, will it fall back to what the United States has generally been, where we're, we're, we're not the UK, right? Gap years are not the most popular thing uh, in the world. Uh, but we know that colleges are likely to be pretty desperate to fill their classes next year. So there's a ton of seniors right now who are and their parents who are worried, right? Is it going to be the most competitive admission cycle ever next year? And what I've been telling them is actually, I think it's not what you think, that that the classes are just going to be larger to make up for these smaller sophomore classes. Uh, but it's possible that, you know, uh, maybe not as high as this year, you know, 13 to 16% taking a gap year, it could be more like 
five to 10%, though, still higher than, you know, the norm uh, that I think maybe defer a year. And so that rebalancing and then like, are there new trends that come out of this is something that I'm personally uh, paying uh, very close attention to. So, Michael, one of the interesting things about both of these interviews with the presidents is they it kept talking about the science, right? And we hear this so often in higher ed, particularly because many of these big research universities, of course, have public health schools. But but it's curious if they are listening to the science. How are all these institutions kind of reaching such different conclusions about what to do? Are you a little bit more cynical about how these decisions are getting made on campuses that maybe it's a bit more about campus survival in some cases? Yeah, you're reading me correctly, Jeff. Uh, you know, I just stepping back one, you know, one step, I do think it's important because uh, because of the political environment we're in right now, I do think that there is a uh, reaction to often say, well, the science says X, when in fact, science is something that evolves based on our, you know, over time, our understanding, and it's more of a method and process than a statement of fact, right? Our, our understanding hundreds of years ago was that uh, the world, excuse me, the universe revolved around the earth, and then we learned better. And, uh, you know, things get updated over time. And that's really what science is. So so part of I, I only say that because I do think as more data comes in and we refine our understanding of COVID-19 and prevention and precautions and so forth, you can evolve your response. And so for a campus like BU to build a response off of the latest science, but to be able to marshal a ton of resources to evolve that response responsibly as more information comes in, right, through the testing that they're doing and the like, uh, you know, makes sense. Whereas Cal State is not quite the funding per pupil uh, that a BU might be, right, in the same level of resources. We know California uh, higher education system has not gotten the public investment, right, over the last many decades uh, that perhaps uh, they, they might have sought. And so that has certain implications in my mind about how you can even respond uh, in, in these times. But to, to answer your question about the cynicism, Cynicism. I, 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 part of me is a little sympathetic to it because I do think like if these if these uh, you know certain schools close like there are huge health ramifications and economic ramifications for those who get laid off, particularly the 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 staff uh, and and thinking a little bit less about faculty, but they're they're at risk too, and and then the ripple effects into some of these smaller towns that where the college or the main economic uh, you know center, if you will. But I don't know that colleges were, in a lot of cases, doing that cost-benefit calculation. I think they were looking at their financial statements saying, we need students, we need tuition dollars, we have fixed costs, and we think if we say we're reopening, we've got a better chance of getting students to commit, and then we can actually figure out what the heck we'll do closer to the fall. And that's, I guess, my cynical nature is that that I think some of that was just driven very narrowly without a careful cost-benefit calculation on what's really in the interests uh, of, of all of the different stakeholders, students, faculty, staff, the communities themselves. That, that, that's my take. But I mean, look, you've covered the Cal State system, uh, you know, 20 years ago as a reporter for the Chronicle. And I, I'm curious your take on the on the cynicism question. I certainly don't think it was present there, but across higher ed. But 
I'm also curious because Cal State is different, right? It's it's a system of campuses. It's not a standalone campus. So so how are these decisions different from your perspective in that sort of a context uh, versus you know someone like President Brown that that is managing one campus, not all of Boston, say? Yeah, and I think there's a double-edged sword with being part of a, a campus, right? It gives you the the protection and the resources on one hand uh, that you know an individual campus wouldn't have on their own, but but, you know, President Brown can make his decision because he's in Boston. But just th- imagine, you know, California is a huge state uh, with these urban campuses and more rural campuses. But they kind of have to make the decision as a whole based on kind of, you know, the, the one campus that might have problems opening up, for example. Uh, so I think that's that's the that's the negative part with being part of a, a campus is that you're, you're kind of going the the speed of your slowest member in, in some cases or your slowest campus. And, and that may have what been what happened in this case where some campuses might have been ready to open up, others uh, weren't op- ready to open up. The other advantage, though, the, the, an advantage, I think, and, and Judy mentioned this, was her ability to reach out to other presidents in the system and 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 find out what's going on and, and share stories and and help each other it's a lot less lonely i think being part of a campus i mean when i talk to presidents these days these are re- these are these are not the jobs they signed up for of course uh and you know they're under pressure from you know local officials from health officials from campuses especially those campuses that might be undergoing some you know cutbacks uh, you know, so they're not the most popular person right now on campus, not that they ever were. And, and, and it's kind of a lonely job, I think, for most of these presidents. I'm, I'm not I don't feel too sorry for them. But but, uh, you know, there's a you know system. There's a, there's a, a, an option for more collaboration uh, and, and help with each other. And I think that's the other issue here is we know and we've talked about this many times before on Future U that collaboration in many ways is, is the future of higher ed, um, you know, deeper collab- academic collaboration in, indeed, you know, things like course sharing and department sharing and other back office operations beyond the academic side of the house. You know, that's how you achieve the scale that you need to achieve in higher ed to really increase efficiency and reduce costs. And again, that's something the system has the ability to do, not necessarily that it is doing it or it will do it, but it has an easier ability because of this, its natural ability to collaborate than a single institution like, you know, Boston University. So, you know, just the costs of COVID and dealing with COVID are huge on some campuses it's much easier to spread that out over 23 campuses than it is one uh, in particular. So I think that's the advantage of being in a, in a system right now, which I, if I had probably vote, I would vote probably to be in a system right now. Yeah, that, no, that's helpful. And I think it's a major theme actually from the last several podcasts we've done, Jeff, uh, about collaboration. Even President Brown said being able to network with the other presidents in, in Boston right. was yeah. helpful. And right. And then here, obviously, in a system even better than that. And even when we had Dan Greenstein on, right, uh, you know, Dan talked about how uh, the collaboration within his system of, of presidents, frankly, as they do this consolidation uh, of, of, of campuses, uh, has been helpful as well. And so I, I think collaboration is a big theme that will end uh, our 2020 series of podcasts on. Uh, we're going to be taking our customary end of the year break, but we will be back with you all in early 2021. And I think I speak for all of us when, we're, so when I say, here's hoping that 2021 is much better for all of us than 2020. 
I'll look forward to seeing you then and happy new year, everyone. Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.